0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we are committed to providing our community with voices voices of conscience from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson, I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. If you are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio, we invite you to visit us in person Details about upcoming forums can be found online at www.ewestminster.org. It's a pleasure to welcome the first speaker in our fall series on media ethics to the forum today. Paul Starr is professor of sociology at Princeton University and co-editor of the American Prospect, a magazine he founded with journalist Robert Kuttner and former Labor Secretary Robert Reich. His 1984 book, The Social Transformation of American Medicine, won the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction and Bancroft Prize in American History. He later served as a White House advisor on health policy in the Clinton White House. Professor Starr opens the Westminster Town Hall Forum fall series with a discussion of his new book, The Creation of the Media, which provides a history of the forces shaping communications over three and a half centuries. Examining everything from the postal system and the press to the movies and broadcasting, he argues that distinctive political choices led to the rise of the American media and to many of the problems with the media that we face today. Old issues have become new again as we wrestle with such things as censorship and indecency, media concentration, and partisanship and the news. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Professor Paul Starr. Thank you for
1: inviting me to speak in this series. In this election season, when people discuss media ethics, it's usually about the Use of the media for political purposes. Are the, are the media biased in their coverage? Are the candidates manipulating the media for their own advantage? Is the government uh, exerting influence over the press? In the United States, we have uh, a long-standing belief that uh, the government and the press ought to, be, ought to be separate from one another. Many people were disturbed, for example, when the Bush administration earlier this year persuaded some TV news programs to use administration-produced videos in which actors pretended to be reporters. That incident even prompted a, a complaint of unfair competition from the media. It, happened, it came from The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, who said, how can a little show like ours hope to compete if the federal government gets into the business of producing fake news? <laughs> now, I, I sympathize with, uh, with Jon Stewart. But competition in the business of producing fake news is coming from all directions these days. Uh, He does, uh, John Stewart does have a certain competitive advantage. At least, you know, when you watch his show, it is fake, he admits it's fake. Well, although bias and spin and sometimes outright fraud are the immediate focus of so much discussion today, the relationship between politics and the media exists at a deeper level. From the founding of the United States, key decisions, the courts, uh, Congress, have determined what kind of media would develop and under what rules uh, they would operate. And my new book explores this connection, not so much the short-term political use of the media, but the long-term historical process of the creation of the media, and that's why the book has that title, The Creation of the Media. I use the term media in two senses. First, the various channels of communication created from the early 17th to the 20th centuries, the press, postal and telecommunication networks, uh, the movies, broadcasting. And second, as a set of powerful institutions, the media in the everyday sense of that term that shape the news we learn, the books we read, the music we hear, the ideas, images, stories that form so much a part of our common culture. And when I began work on this project a decade ago, I thought I would write about the contemporary information revolution until I discovered it was moving too fast for me to say anything of durable interest. But in the midst of the technological mania of the 90s, when the internet was said to have changed everything, it seemed to me that many people lacked an understanding of the historical sweep that lay behind contemporary change. And in particular, the role that politics had played and will necessarily continue to play in creating the basic framework of communication. And so I undertook a broad historical synthesis of the kind that. I had earlier undertaken in my book about medicine, The Social Transformation of American Medicine. The creation of the media is above all a work of history, but it's also about the communicative foundations of democracy, about freedom of speech, about secrecy and privacy and the development of the sphere of public debate. So it's concerned with problems of democratic theory and with the practical choices in our public life that we continue to face today. Finally. This is a book about America. The creation of the media, I like to say, is the story of an American triumph and an American dilemma. The triumph has been, from an early point in our history, the more rapid growth and diffusion of communications in the United States than elsewhere. My argument is that this early and persistent American leadership is traceable to key political decisions, beginning with those made at the founding of the republic And the framework created by these choices has been a source of a vital public sphere, economic growth, cultural influence, and even military advantage for the United States. The dilemma for America is this. In the classic vision of democracy, the press is supposed to be the people's guardian against abuses of power. But the media have now become a constellation of power in their own right. In some cases, control has been highly concentrated in a few organizations, and these companies have been able to bend the law to their advantage. And for this problem, our politics has no obvious solution. It's a continuing struggle. At the core of this book is the concept of choice, and not so much the choice that economists think about, individual choices in response to marginal changes in prices and so forth but rather collective choices about the institutional and material framework of social activity. And I call these constitutive choices because they involve how things are constituted, the basic design and rules of operation. These are choices, for example, about whether a new medium of communication will be owned and operated as governmental or private, or some mixture of the two. Or the choice may be framed as whether a a new medium is a military or commercial technology. The choices involve systems of control, of censorship, or freedom of expression, of intellectual property. The choices involve the architecture of networks and technologies from postal systems to broadcasting to the Internet. These choices emerge at specific moments in history, constitutive moments. Some of these are times of political upheaval, such as revolutions and the founding of new states. Others arrived with the invention or introduction of a new communications technology, the telegraph in the eighteen forties or radio in the nineteen twenties. The decisions in the nineteen twenties and thirties regarding radio, the alloc- allocate the allocation of the spectrum for different uses, the assignment of channels, the basic system of ownership of stations and the rules governing their use. That's to me it's a perfect example of constitutive choice of institutions literally being created out of thin air. Now, constitutive choices at the time they're made may be contingent on circumstances. In other words, some technologies, some institutions might have developed differently if the early choices about them had been made at another moment. But once made, constitutive choices often become entrenched and difficult to change, or they invite change in one particular direction from the 17th to the mid-20th centuries. That's the span of this book. I argue that the choices about communication in Europe and North America were made in the context of a few overarching developments. The primacy of the nation state, the emergence of liberal constitutionalism, the expansion of the reading public and other cultural markets. The power of the modern media is a byproduct of the decisions made in the context of these developments as they played out in different societies. In the United States, by by promoting the press, by privatizing the telegraph, telephone, and broadcasting, by establishing laws and policies that help these and other media industries to flourish, the United States set in motion the ascendancy of the American media as a force in our society and beyond. Well, what I've said so far is very abstract, but let me take you back in time to the early 1800s, when European visitors to America were struck by the extraordinary web of communications in the United States. Traveling by mail coach in 1830 in America, Alexis de Tocqueville marveled at what he called the astonishing circulation of letters and newspapers and found that people, even people who lived at the edge of the frontier, were informed about events of the wider world. Unlike a European peasant, Tocqueville wrote, the American backwoodsman talks the language of a town He's aware of the present, of the past, curious about the future, and ready to argue about the present. He plunges into the wildernesses of the New World with his Bible, his acts, and his newspapers. But how did Americans get newspapers in the wilderness? It wasn't simply a matter of American culture or character. The web of communication that Tocqueville observed was not a predictable outcome of European settlement. It was a direct result of politics. Just across the Great Lakes in what was still British North America, postal service was limited, newspapers were scarce, schools were few. That contrast between Americans and Canadians partly stemmed from their varying cultural and colonial heritages. But the political transformation of the United States in the previous half century had accentuated those early differences The Americans had carried out a revolution, the Canadians had not. And after after becoming independent, Americans had decided not just to allow communication to develop, but to promote it in a deliberate effort to create a new society and a more powerful nation with a republican system of government. At least four key changes came out of the revolutionary period and the first years of the early republic that were critically important for determining the whole path of development of the media later on. First, the revolutionary struggle itself elevated freedom of the press to a political value of the highest importance, and that liberty, which no nation had ever previously recognized, became codified in the Bill of Rights, and perhaps even more important, became established as a fixture of American political belief. Second, The colonial struggle against Britain, in particular the American resistance to the Stamp Act in 1765, which if it had been carried out would have imposed heavy taxes on colonial newspapers, left a strong unwritten precedent against any taxation of the press. Third, in 1792, Congress established a structure for the postal system that actively promoted newspapers. Newspapers enjoyed a categorical right of distribution. Postal officials had no authority to exclude any newspaper. Moreover, regardless of viewpoint, newspapers benefited from two kinds of subsidies, discount rates for distribution to subscribers and a right of free exchange, which enabled editors all over the country to obtain news from other papers at no charge. In effect, the federal government underwrote the creation of a national news network without, however, controlling the content of that news and thereby supported the geographical decentralization of the press and the diffusion of national political news. And fourth, the competition for power that emerged in the early republic led political parties to propagate newspapers, beginning with the Jeffersonians in the 1790s Embryonic political parties quickly discovered that creating networks of partisan papers was a route to electoral victory. The election of 1800, sometimes called the Revolution of 1800, not only marked the first peaceful transfer of power from one party to another, it also signaled the invention of a new means of democratic political insurgency through newspapers. By the early 19th century, the contrast between Europe and America could not have been clearer. Afraid of a popular press that could stir unrest, European governments not only censored the press, they also imposed stamp duties and other financial burdens on newspapers to make them more expensive and thereby to limit their circulation. Taxing newspapers, they had relatively few of them. In contrast, the United States subsidized newspapers. Consequently, we had a lot more of them. By the time Tocqueville visited America in 1830, The United States had a higher newspaper circulation than any other country in the world. European postal networks had generally been limited to capitals and larger commercial cities. The American-Republican contrast concerned about holding the country together created a postal network that extended into every village and out to the western frontier. As a result, the American press had a much wider penetration in what was an overwhelmingly rural society. European newspapers were centralized in capital cities like London and Paris. In the United States, little small town and country papers sprouted all over. And because many of the printers who started these papers also undertook other kinds of publishing, the book publishing industry in the United States developed on a far more decentralized basis than in England, France, or other major European states. And to be sure, the 17th and early 18th centuries in Europe had, had seen important steps in England and continental Europe toward the development of a public sphere, that is a sphere of public discussion and public opinion. And if we step back to 1600, now backing up a little bit historically, two kinds of barriers obstructed public communication and therefore the possibility of democracy. First there were barriers arising from limited communication networks, and second, norms of secrecy and privilege regulated political discussion. That is, ordinary people were not supposed to know anything about politics, lest they presume to make judgments about things reserved for the elite. In England, for example, it was a crime to divulge what was said in Parliament and other councils of state. The growth of markets and trade and state-led development of roads and postal systems helped to overcome the infrastructural barriers to public discussion. But so long as norms of political secrecy and privilege prevailed, public communication could have served merely to project authority, not to foster public debate. I argue that in the 17th and 18th centuries, two factors Divisions among political elites and competition among printers, either within a country or across borders, were critical in the emergence of a public sphere on a de facto basis. For example, in the Netherlands and in Colonial America. And this de facto public sphere was a crucial experience in preparing the ground for for the formal legal protection of freedom of speech. The American Revolution, however, was the event that transformed that first transformed a de facto public sphere into one that was legally based, institutionally entrenched, and capable of providing a people with the communicative instruments of self-government. As some have disputed whether the American Revolution was a true social revolution, my book may offer a new perspective on this old question. For if one asks in what way the American Revolution was was a genuinely revolutionary event, Surely one part of the answer is that that revolution was also a communications revolution. The adoption of the Constitution in 1789, indeed the very nature of the Constitution, exemplified what was revolutionary about the creation of the American Republic. We all know that the United States, unlike Britain, has a written Constitution. But it's perhaps more important that our Constitution was also printed and published indeed widely printed in newspapers within days of being approved in Philadelphia. And it was not only printed at just over 5,000 words of ordinary language, it was also readable, short enough and accessible enough that people who were not lawyers could read and discuss it. Much of the debate about the Constitution, like the Federalist Papers, which were originally a series of newspaper articles, took place in the press. No country in history had ever before had a public debate about the adoption of its organic law, its basic law. To be sure, there were severe limitations to early American democracy, the exclusion of blacks, of women, even of white men without property. But the creation of a sphere of open public debate about questions of high importance turned a page in human history. The popular press that first emerged in America proved to be immensely creative Popularization unfolded in a series of stages. The mobilization of the, of the popular press in the revolutionary era, the, the spread of small circulation newspapers through villages and towns in the early republic, the advent of the so-called penny press in the larger cities of the 1830s, the emergence of the new journalism of Joseph Pulitzer and others in the 1870s and 80s. It wasn't simply that the number of newspapers or the circulation grew faster in the United States. It was journalism itself that America developed in new ways. As papers competed to attract readers, including immigrants and women and others, they represented a greater variety of human interests in their pages, simplified their style, created attention-grabbing forms of graphic design, invented new modes of reporting and writing. The interview, for example, was an American journalistic invention of the 1860s that later spread to England and France, where it was recognized as a distinctly American practice. Previously, when important people wanted to have their words in print, they composed an essay, or they had a speech reprinted. The idea of a mere reporter putting high-status people on the spot by asking them questions, that was impertinent, it was insolent, it was unthinkable. At first, some important people wouldn't stand for it, at least they wouldn't sit for one. There is something egalitarian about an interview. However, for the rich and famous, interviews are also a means of publicity. Another reason why the practice began in America where advertising and commercialism enjoyed wider and easier acceptance than in European societies. But if the popular press had its creative achievements, It also had its darker side. The lurid sensationalism and fervent jingoism that we associate with the so-called yellow press or the later tabloids. Markets both enlarge and distort the public sphere. And while the commercial media may serve as a check on government, they do not necessarily prevent power from becoming concentrated in a few hands. Consider what happened with the first great communications network technology, the telegraph. In some respects, the electric telegraph continued the story of more rapid and ubiquitous development of communication in the United States. I say the electric telegraph because there actually was a preceding system, the so-called visual or semaphoric telegraph that consisted of relay towers with windmill-like devices whose arms could be positioned and rotated to transmit messages from one station to the next. The French had first developed this system for military use, and other European states had followed their example, but the United States did not do the same. So when the electric telegraph emerged in the 1840s, the Europeans saw it as another military technology and made it part of the government, whereas America developed it as a commercial medium. There was, however, considerable support in the United States for making the telegraph part of the post office, and the decision might have gone that way. In fact, the first telegraph line was financed and owned by the federal government. And Samuel F. B. Morse, the inventor, was originally anxious to sell his patent to the government. But it didn't work out that way. In the 1844 election, the Whigs, led by Henry Clay, favored nationalization of the telegraph, while the Democrats, led by James Polk, preferred to leave the telegraph to private business. The Democrats won that election, and the telegraph developed privately. Within a short time, dozens of telegraph companies were frantically racing to build lines connecting America's major cities. But while the telegraph took off more quickly in the United States, it was also transformed within two decades from a competitive industry into the first national monopoly of any kind in the United States, as Western Union telegraph gobbled up its rivals. And because Western Union transmitted no other news service but the Associated Press, The telegraph monopoly effectively meant a monopoly in the distribution of national news, what we would call headline news. And the Associated Press was very close in that period to the Republican Party. In fact, uh, in the 1877 election, 1876 election, uh, uh, the Associated Press was sometimes called the Hayes Associated Press. Ruth Rutherford B. Hayes was the Republican candidate, and the Democrats in that election believed that the Associated Press was manipulating the news in order to favor, uh, to favor Hayes's uh, election. Um, this was the beginning of concentrated economic power in the media, which we face in such powerful forms today. When Western Union gained monopoly power, the United States had no antitrust law, it had no communications regulation, it really didn't have any legal or political principles for dealing with great agglomerations of private power. And although we do now have an antitrust and regulatory tradition, many people believe the marketplace and technology will take care of the problem of monopoly power, an idea that is enormously attractive, but ultimately, I believe, an illusion. Now the mixed story of the telegraph, rapid early growth of communications, along with the emergence of concentrated economic power, was repeated in three successive media the telephone, broadcasting, and the movies. And let me briefly draw for you the outlines of the story. The different constitutive choices for the telegraph in Europe and America became the basis for different choices for the telephone. European states put the telephone under the control of the same bureaucracy that ran the postal and telegraph networks, whereas the United States left the telephone to the private sector. Except for the period uh, from 1893 to roughly 1912, when there was intense competition between rival telephone networks, the telephone industry, like the telegraph, came under the sway of one giant corporation, Bell Telephone. The European decision to vest control of the telegraph in the same organization that ran the post office, excuse me, telephone and the same organization that ran the uh, post office and telegraph led to extremely slow development of the telephone. For a long time, the Europeans saw no reason to invest in long distance telephone service, much less than technological innovation in the new medium, because the telegraph already provided what seemed to them a quite satisfactory, long-distance, instantaneous communications network. Even though the United States saw monopolies emerge in the telegraph and telephone, there remained what economists call intermodal competition, that is, competition across technologies. Repeatedly in the United States, the organization that controlled the dominant network did not gain control of an emerging alternative. So the post office didn't get control of the telegraph in the 1840s, Western Union didn't get control of the telephone in the 1870s and 80s, and then later Bell Telephone failed to get control, as it tried to get control of uh, radio broadcasting. In each case, we saw new organizations uh, emerge, and there was competition across these uh, technologies. And as I mentioned, for a period from 1893 to 1912, the telephone industry had wide open competition with many independent companies and rural telephone cooperatives that extended service into areas, this is particularly true here in the Midwest, uh, that, the, uh, that the Bell system neglected. So these aspects of competition and pluralism in the United States had a tremendously stimulating impact on the growth of telecommunications, making telephone service much more widespread in the United States than it was in Europe in the early 1900s. It's not too much of a simplification also to say that for the century beginning with Alexander Graham Bell's invention in 1876, innovation in telephone technology was almost entirely an American story. The same pattern of rapid early development, with growing concentration of power, got repeated in the 1920s, when radio moved from transmitting messages in Morse code to transmitting voices and music. The Europeans, again, nationalized radio. America left it to private development. Again, the United States had a more pluralistic, decentralized, and dynamic industry. But by the late 1920s, Concentrated economic power emerged, this time in the form of two national networks, NBC and CBS, which controlled programming on the high power stations with the strongest signals. Choices by the federal government in the 20s were crucial to the result. When radio stations first proliferated in the early 1920s, non-commercial groups were extensively involved. Schools, churches, various other kinds of nonprofit organizations, at the beginning virtually everyone said that advertising would be a terrible thing on the radio. After Congress established the Federal Radio Commission and to regulate the airwaves in 1927, the commission could have maintained that early pattern by dividing the spectrum into large numbers of low-powered and moderate-powered stations and assigning some portion of them to educational, religious, and other non-profit groups. But instead, the new agency emphasized high-powered stations, and adopted criteria for awarding licenses that favored commercial organizations, and within a short time, CBS and NBC took control of the medium. Finally, the movies also exhibited the same pattern as telecommunications and broadcasting, an American edge with growing concentrations of private power. Motion picture technology was not a peculiarly American development. In fact, before World War I, France had a stronger movie industry than the United States. But by 1920, Hollywood had already emerged as the center of the world's film industry. The source of American comparative advantage was a bit different in this case than in the others. Beginning around 1905, America had seen the rapid growth of an urban, heavily immigrant movie audience. The early movie companies joined together in the so-called Edison Trust and dominated by native-born, technically oriented entrepreneurs like Thomas Edison himself, lost out to a group of independent movie makers, mostly Jewish immigrants, who started out as theater owners and then moved into production in response to the Edison Trust's attempt to control the business. The independents had a better grasp of the audience, of changing fashions and tastes, and they were able to produce movies exportable to Europe because they were already producing movies for Europeans in America for mixed audiences of immigrants. And therefore, they didn't make films that appealed exclusively to one group. Cultural pluralism in America, the mixed character of American audiences, and and of creative talent has been a basis for the global exportability and comparative advantage of American entertainment. In the early days of silent film, entry into the movie business was relatively easy. Films were cheap to make. And there actually was a great deal of diversity including ideological diversity in the movies, but as in the case of radio, an early pluralism gave way to a growing consolidation by the end of the 1920s, as eight movie companies dominated by five majors gained control not only over production, but also distribution and exhibition. There was an economic logic to this development, but its effects depended crucially on decisions by the government. First, a decision not to pursue antitrust enforcement against what was clearly an industry cartel. And second, a decision by the Supreme Court in 1915 that the movies lay outside the protection of the First Amendment. In the face of censorship by local and state movie censorship boards and demands by private groups for even greater limitations, the movie producers capitulated in 1934 and agreed to a system of industry-enforced censorship known as the the Production Code, probably the most rigid censorship regime ever imposed on any communications medium in American history. That system would likely never have worked had control of the entire industry, from movie production to distribution to theater ownership, not become concentrated in a a handful of firms. And the problem of concentrated power in the media began to be addressed to some degree in the early 1900s with the emergence of antitrust law. In 1909, AT&T got control of Western Union. Four years later, Woodrow Wilson's attorney general used an antitrust suit to split control of the telegraph and telephone. The emergence of telephone regulation in succeeding years began to impose some limitation on the ability of AT&T to exploit its monopoly position first radio regulation had no impact on the rise of the networks. Uh, when he first came into office, Franklin Roosevelt had so great a need of radio to reach the public, he was convinced that newspaper publishers were against the New Deal, that he did nothing to offend radio interests. But in the late 1930s and 40s, the New Deal began to move against monopoly power in the media. In 1941, the Federal Communications Commission, which had succeeded the earlier Federal Radio Commission, set rules limiting network ownership of radio stations and forcing NBC to divest itself of the stations that later became ABC. Antitrust suits sustained in key Supreme Court decisions forced the movie companies to give up ownership of movie theaters and limited the power of the Associated Press. In the early 1950s, the Supreme Court reversed itself and said the movies were to be protected by the First Amendment. The post-World War II era did see the dominance of three television networks, repeating the earlier pattern in radio. But radio itself, particularly with the rise of FM, actually became far more diverse in the 1950s and especially in the 1960s. The creation of public broadcasting in the 1960s contributed another diversifying element, and FCC policies during those decades provided for additional limits on broadcast station ownership. Although newspaper chains were on the rise, the newspaper industry remained quite decentralized, particularly if set against patterns in Europe where national newspapers tend to dominate most countries' circulation. So despite the dominance of network television, there were stronger elements of localism and diversity in the American media in those decades than in other advanced societies at the time. Still, the three big TV networks exercised considerable power over public life. The rules they set for political access to the airwaves virtually amounted to a system of private regulation of American politics. The key element was the distinction between news to be covered at the expense of the broadcaster and advertising to be paid for by the candidate or party. Broadcasters themselves decided what would go into each category. They offered free free coverage of national party conventions, used to be gavel to gavel coverage, and certain other events they deemed newsworthy while charging for other political broadcasts. They also adopted the practice of giving equal treatment to the two major parties while devoting much less attention to third parties and other groups. Broadcasters opposed any legal requirement of free airtime for candidates, partly out of concern that it would force them to open the airwaves to radicals and fringe candidates. Political advertising didn't only generate revenue for broadcasters, it also enabled the two major parties to dominate the air because they were best able to pay for it. Even by the 1930s, broadcast advertising, radio advertising in those days, was a major expense in campaign budgets. And of course, it grew to dominate all other expenditures after television arrived in the post-World War II decades. Public policy at that time, nonetheless, limited the ability of the networks to favor one party over another. American law did not generally treat broadcasters as common carriers. That is, broadcasters were not obliged, as were telephone companies, to carry the messages of anyone willing and able to pay. The one exception was election campaigns, where Congress required stations to, quote, afford equal opportunities to opposing candidates. The law didn't require stations to provide time to campaigns. It merely said that if they aired one candidate's message, They had to offer equal opportunities at the same price uh, to other legally qualified candidates for the same office. An important extension of the equal opportunities principle came in 1949 when the FCC adopted the Fairness Doctrine, requiring broadcast uh, stations to air controversial news and public affairs programs and to offer reply time to people who disagreed with the station's views. This was a dramatically different interpretation of the First Amendment than the Supreme Court applied to the press. And these constitutive choices about broadcasting shaped the relationship of politics and television during TV's early decades. Control remained highly concentrated in three networks, but the networks were subject to regulatory pressure that constrained their ability to take sides. They aired news and public affairs programs that were unprofitable but felt to be necessary to satisfy regulatory pressures and the parties and their candidates spent increasing amounts of money on television advertising, shifting their emphasis from labor-intensive face-to-face campaigning to more capital-intensive media campaigns consisting primarily of television spot ads. This pattern of campaigning, with its attendant fundraising demands, did not, of course, emerge in Western European democracies where national broadcast authorities gave opposing parties free airtime. Recent decades have seen dramatic changes in the media, and many people understand those changes as entirely driven by technology. But legal and political decisions about free speech, intellectual property, libel, privacy, media ownership, and many other issues have remained central in determining what kind of media develop and how they affect our public life. In 1987, to take one important example, the FCC abandoned the Fairness Doctrine, and the agency has since not used its authority to promote public affairs programming in the broadcast media, which have cut back the money and airtime they devote to news and public issues. It was symptomatic of broader uh, trends that the broadcast networks, which used to cover political conventions gavel to gavel, as i said before, gave uh, cutback convention coverage uh, this year to just one hour per night. Recent decades have also seen a decline in the number of independently owned newspapers with strong commitments to journalism. Soft news and entertainment values increasingly take precedence in print as well as on the air. The big question facing the big media, as Harold Evans has said, is not whether they will stay in business, but whether they will stay in journalism. The end of the Fairness Doctrine also released the broadcast media from requirements for balance and opened the way to specialization in ideological audiences. Conservative talk radio emerged soon after 1987. Fox News, directed by Roger Ailes, came in the mid-90s. More recently, liberals have attempted to start a radio network of their own, Air America, but it has only a small number of affiliates, generally secondary stations, in their markets. In a sense, these developments represent a return to the partisan press of 19th century America. At this point, however, conservatives have command of a stronger position in radio and television, though liberals probably have retained greater influence in the movies and publishing. Partisanship was muted in the media through the mid-20th century. Now it is more open, sharp, and often downright belligerent. 30 years ago, the media's role in politics, in electoral politics in particular, consisted mainly in presenting the alternatives. Now the media are in the thick of the battle themselves. No wonder the fight for an edge in the media has seemed so critical to the election outcome in 2004. The lesson is as old as the post office. The framework we create for communication is a framework for politics. America's early postal system contributed to a highly competitive electoral system. The classic era in broadcasting, favored the two major parties at the expense of others, but preserved a degree of balance. Whether the current trend in the media is good for democracy, only time will tell. The digital revolution and the explosion of new media have led many people to believe that technology has solved the problem of media power and made obsolete the old regulatory policies, such as limits on station ownership. The 1996 Telecommunications Act reflected that optimistic view. But the picture is more complicated. Americans have access to far more TV channels in the past, but five corporations control enough of those channels to command 75% of the prime time audience, a share that's likely to increase to 85%. After the 1996 Act removed the limit on radio station ownership, two companies, Clear Channel and Infinity, accumulated enough of the strong stations to command more than 70% of revenues in radio. No doubt the internet affords countless groups and individuals low-cost means of communicating or at least announcing their views, but reaching the wider public is another matter. Traffic on the web is highly concentrated on sites controlled by the same corporations that dominate other media. While a few giants dominate the media, the law has increasingly favored their interests in interpreting the First Amendment. A few decades ago, A majority of justices on the Supreme Court understood freedom of speech and of the press to include the right of the public to hear a diversity of views. Today, the courts are more likely to interpret First Amendment rights as exclusively the rights of the owners. In this view, the the journalist A.J. Liebling's line that freedom of the press belongs to the man who owns one is no longer a joke. It's the law of the land. But the First Amendment ought not to be just a super property right. It ought to be consistent with policies supporting a diversity of public voices. Think of the original post office with its huge subsidies for partisan newspapers of all kinds as a model for how we ought to carry out the purposes of the First Amendment. We have a great and successful tradition in America of free dynamic and decentralized communication My hope is that the American triumph in communications may offer some promise of dealing with the American dilemma, and that in a small way, my book may remind us of the legacy in the great choices about the media that we face today. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Paul Starr. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, moderator of the forum. Our guest is Paul Starr, who has just spoken to us about the creation of the media, a study of how communications in Europe and the U.S. were shaped from the 17th to the mid-20th centuries. While ushers collect questions from our audience at Westminster, We would like to remind our Minnesota public radio listeners that forums are free and open to the public. For information about upcoming forums, you can visit us online at www.ewestminster.org. The Town Hall Forum would like to extend its gratitude to our sponsors, the General Mills, Baker, and Nash Foundations, the Rake Magazine, and Skyway News. We thank also the many generous individuals who support our mission to promote public discussion of the leading ethical questions of our time. Paul Starr, if you will return to the pulpit at Westminster, we will begin the questions from the audience. What about the advent of the internet? What impact is it having in the media, particularly with respect to concentration of media power?
1: The the, the internet has been uh, the great hope of people who want to see the concentration of control uh, reduced. And so we've had um, a tremendous explosion of independent websites, of blogs, and, uh, and, and uh, in many respects, this is, uh, to me, entirely consistent with this dynamic tradition in the United States. And ju- just a word about the internet. Uh, uh, as the post office was a government effort, still is a government effort, that facilitated independent communication. Uh, so too the internet, which began as a government effort, has facilitated a tremendous amount of independent communications. So I see it as being completely in line with this, with this, with this uh, American uh, tradition. Uh, on the other hand, as I mentioned, there's a, um, a very considerable concentration of traffic uh, on the internet, on a small number of, uh, of commercial sites, so that uh, we can't be certain uh, that um, it's really going to solve this problem of, uh, uh, of concentrated uh, media power. Um, but, but I also want to emphasize one other aspect. Uh, the uh, ability of uh, individuals to create their own sites, their own blogs, uh, to post, uh, their views, without any mediating editorial process, has had, I think, a, a very considerable impact uh, because there's a, there's an elimination of any kind of impulse control. So uh, 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 rumors, uh, 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 thoughts of all kinds can can, can get into circulation uh, without the kind of screening that, to some extent, has always existed uh, in uh, in the in the more uh, conventional. Uh, media, and there's there's a lot of uh, evidence to suggest uh, that um, uh, the expression of uh, hostility uh, is much easier uh, in uh, in electronic form uh, uh, than it is than it is in in the other way. So there's a, there's a potential there for. The decline of any kind of uh, uh, civil uh, uh, relationship and uh, and and uh, 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 real injury, I think, to the to the quality of public
0: discussion. A question about the responsibilities of the general public: What responsibilities do we bear for this concentration of the media? And a kind of a follow-up question: What's the future of public media? Uh, NPR, for instance, uh, public TV.
1: Well, this is uh, the, the question of, of public responsibility is, uh, is, is uh, uh, one that's directly related to uh, decisions that the government uh, makes. Um, the, the Federal Communications Commission, under its present chair, Michael Powell, has been um, trying to uh, remove some of the limitations on media concentration. And uh, it's very interesting that there has Developed opposition uh, that extends across the political spectrum. Uh, this particularly has been in relation to the question of how many stations, how many television stations, a single company could own. And uh, I don't know whether uh, people who are here are aware that, uh, of the of this of uh, this battle. It's still in the courts. It's actually not it's not uh, resolved. But the basic question is: you know, can can a single company own enough stations so it can? Uh, it can uh, uh, cover 45 percent uh, uh, versus 35 uh, percent of the TV, uh, of the national TV audience, and uh, while that may seem a technical question, it involves again the extension of power over the individual stations uh, by, uh, by companies like uh, News Corp uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, 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 D- Disney and so forth. Um, and what you have here is uh, uh, this curious alliance that's developed so that there are, there are people on the right who are concerned about liberal bias who object to Disney for example or some other media companies and there are people on the left who are worried about Uh, the power of Rupert Murdoch and Fox and so forth, and so uh, you get this kind of cross-ideological coalition that has developed in favor of uh, uh, limiting the number of stations that a single company could own. This is also, I think, in line with a a long tradition in this country that has favored greater local control in in the media. And uh, despite the erosion of localism, there is still a good deal of feeling that it's it's a good idea not to allow power to get concentrated in just a few hands.
0: I'm afraid that concludes the time we have for the forum today. Thank you, Paul Starr, for exploring with us the creation of the media. The Westminster Town Hall Forum invites you to join us on September 30th for the next in our series on media ethics, featuring the executive director of the Minnesota News Council, Gary Gilson. Thank you, Paul.